Rich and Steve on Arizona Sports Saturday. Arizona Sports, the local sports leader. Happy Saturday, everybody. This is Arizona Sports Saturday. It's your weekend stop for live and local sports talk. Reunited in the month of May. Mitch and, it feels and Steve. so good. Oh, it feels so good. It's not the only thing that feels so good on this Reaction Saturday, of course, but... Steve, good to see you again. It's been hey. about a month, basically. Good to see you, buddy. Yeah, it's been a few Saturdays for sure. I mean, we've covered a lot of things in the last couple of weeks. Let's be clear on this. We have jumped around topic to topic. Today is mostly basketball. 100%. The way that it should be. Thanks and, to the Suns last night. And not just thanks to the Suns, but thanks to this guy. 39 seconds remaining in the third quarter. Booker drives. Booker, three-pointer. Shoots I agree. Al McCoy on the call there. Wow. 47 points. 20 of 25 from the field in a playoff game. It's one of the most remarkable playoff performances I think I've ever seen. 20 for 25 is incredible efficiency. 5 for 8 from deep is incredible efficiency. Uh, To score 47 points while only shooting two free throws on the night and this is unbelievable. Those free throws only came in the final seconds of the game because Devin yeah. had to stop the clock. He had to stop and giggle. Devin Booker <laughs> giggled in the middle of the fourth quarter. Well, not the middle. At the end, <laughs> with seven seconds left, he laughed because he realized it's seven seconds left in the game and I'm finally shooting my first free throws after shooting 25 shots. It's just absurd. And to think most people probably didn't even know the name Devin Booker last year. Like the casual NBA fan. Could you say that the casual NBA fan is very well aware of Devin Booker? I don't think it's fair to say that people didn't know him. I think people highly underrate him in terms of superstars. We're pretty much at that level now where when you start doing this in the playoffs and you're having 45 point games with some regularity. Now we start talking about you being an NBA superstar. And it's also going to be complicated by the fact that he plays with a guy who will always be viewed as the bigger superstar. Well, look. In Kevin Durant. To help emphasize your point, I saved a bunch of tweets. Okay. This is from ESPN Stats and Info. Devin Booker has his fourth 45-point playoff game. Wow. All other Suns players in franchise history have four such games. Do we know who they are? It's not listed on the tweet okay. that I have. I'm sure we could find it. I'm going to guess Charles has one. This is the point that I wanted to emphasize here. Booker has 293 points so far this postseason. That is the most through a player's first eight games of a postseason since Michael Jordan. I've heard of him. 1990. Wow. Oh, and not even close to where MJ was through eight. MJ had 325. Yeah, that, that's pretty uh, untouchable at this point. That's one. I, I think this is fascinating. We'll continue with your tweets here in a second. Yeah. It's fascinating, too, because in context of what Kevin Durant did last night, where you score 39 points in 43 minutes, but we can all watch the tape and see that Kevin Durant was having an off night. But he did one thing that was super important. Get to the free throw line? Get to the free throw line. He made it a point when his shot, I think it was uh, maybe still towards the end of the first quarter, and I was watching the game with my girlfriend, and she goes, man, Kevin Durant, just, he's just not doing good tonight. And I looked at the stats at that point in the game, and he was one of seven. And that is right then when he turned, he flipped the switch, and he turned to a different approach where he tried to get to the free throw line, something that the Suns don't do very effectively. Look at all the free throws from last night. Only two players went to the free throw line, Durant and Booker, and Booker only took two shots. That difference between the first quarter and the second quarter for Durant really 
helped propel the Suns to the victory. Like, let's we agree. This was very much the Devin Booker helped carry the Suns and lead the Suns to victory. But Kevin Durant was the reason that they were able to explode in the second quarter and maintain control over Denver last night. It can't be understated. More Booker, because this is just the, I, I have it on the show sheet here. Uh, OMG Devin Booker. That's literally what I wrote. <laughs> that could be the title of our whole show, probably. Devin Booker joins Dirk Nowitzki as the only player in NBA history with a 45-point playoff game while shooting 80% or better from the field. Yeah, that sounds like a Dirk stat. How about this? This postseason, Devin Booker is averaging 36.9 points a game, 5 rebounds a game, 6.9 assists a game, 2.1 steals a game. Steve, his percentages from the field, 60%. From three, 49%. And from the free throw line, 88%. 60, 49, 88? Are you kidding me? Uh, and it's it's notable, too, because, I mean, this is a shooting guard we're talking about. Yeah. This is not a seven-footer who takes most of his shots from within 15 feet, maybe some at the elbow. Oh, and heck, let's be honest, he's probably their point guard right now, you know? Yeah, he's point book right now. He had nine assists last night, right, or something like that, I think. Um, nine assists, yeah. Yeah, and so, yeah, the, it's remarkable when you put it in context of what he's being asked to accomplish right now. He's carrying the entire team. I mean, Kevin Durant's doing a lot of work, too. Don't get me wrong. But when you look at the rest of the, the stat lines for these guys, Josh Okoge started last night, played only 10 minutes, two points. Aiton, four points. He had more. Uh, he had just as many fouls as he had points. Uh, we'll get to that later. Campaign, seven points. Seven for Warren. Zero for Craig. Six for Lando. I mean, nobody really came out and carried weight other than those two star players last night. And you figured, and even Durant had a bad day. You figured, too, with the way that the first quarter was going, when Booker was just getting bucket after bucket after bucket, you start to think to yourself, man, this is going to be a Booker night. But yeah. at the same time, you think, is anybody else going to help contribute? Because that first quarter was a little lackluster from the Suns once again. And if it wasn't for Devin Booker, I don't think we're talking about a two and one series. I think we're talking about a down Oh three. I really yeah, think we are. It does worry me quite a bit. Actually, while watching Devin is just, it's otherworldly talent. It's, it's unbelievable to witness at the same time. It worries me because if that guy has a night like Kevin Durant did last night, where he ends up with 39 cause he shoots a lot and he gets to the line or whatever, but ultimately has an off night shooting. I don't know that they win those games. I, I don't know that the Suns can win games against Denver right now without Booker doing what he did last night. And that worries me. That scares me. And I'm not saying that I expected Terrence Ross to come in and have another 30-point game like he did during the regular season or TJ Warren to have a dramatic impact, although he had plus uh, minus of 20 last night, which is the best on the team. Uh, all these guys play important roles. But right now, it feels like if Booker doesn't score 45, you don't win. And that's frightening because you cannot rely on one player to do that consistently. Case in point, I looked up today the all-time NBA leaders in points per game in the playoffs. Number one is Michael Jordan. You won't be surprised by that. Shocker. Number four is Kevin Durant. All-time. Number seven is Devin Booker. Jeez. By far the highest... Duo. I mean, they're both at the peak of their powers right now. I realize Durant is 35 and probably closer to the back end of his career than the front. But they're both at the peak of their powers right now in the NBA. And they're both top seven all-time scorers in the playoffs. I haven't even emphasized this point with Booker. On November 30th, 2022, so before Kevin Durant was a Phoenix Sun, he tweeted out this, Kevin Durant did. 
20 for 25 is bleeping ridiculous Devin Booker. And I didn't even realize Devin Booker had done this exact same stat line this season. On, a, on November 30th against the Chicago Bulls, he went 20 of 25 from the floor in 30 minutes, and he scored 51 points. 51. He probably had more free throws that he night. He did. He yeah. had five <laughs> of six from the line. Wow. Six of seven from three that night, too. You know what's interesting, too? And I realized this after uh, towards the end of the game. Kevin Durant had a chance to get 40 points last night. He ended he with 39. He was at the free throw line, missed the first of two. Made the second. And at that point, you're, they're like, we're up. We're going to win. It's fine. Yeah, Whatever. yeah, right. It's It's... What's one more point, right? Well, I'll tell you what one more point would have gotten them. It would have been only the seventh time in NBA history that teammates scored 40 in the same game. Only six times teammates have scored 40 points each in one game. There's a couple of them in there that I think were Hakeem Olajuwon. I think two of them were. Hakeem and Drexler, probably. Uh, one of them was Drexler. The other one was like a guy named Sleepy something. <laughs> I'm not even kidding. I wish I remembered what his name was. It was Sleepy something. Sleepy Floyd. Sleepy, Sleepy Floyd. Floyd. That was Floyd. it. Yes. Wow. Yes. Thank you. See, Trev knows. He gets it. Trev pays attention to his hoops No, but history. what's funny is like if you look at, I was looking up a lot of uh, duo statistics, right, mm-hmm. in honor of Durant and Booker. And one of them is, you know, the most points scored in an NBA game by a duo. Do you know who it was? Any NBA game, not just a playoff game. Like MJ and Pippen? No. Shaq and Kobe? No. Although Kobe is one of them. It's Kobe and a teammate, but it's not Shaquille O'Neal. Oh, because Kobe had 81 that night. Kobe had 81. Who had the second most points in that game? Don't say Kobe, bro. No, but it's just as embarrassing. Lamar Odom? Smush Parker had 13 points in that game, combining with Kobe to have the most points in a basketball game by a duo. That's so unfair. Smush Parker belongs on that list (laughs) of greatest all-time NBA duos in scoring. (laughs) I looked that up this morning. Look, we're... We, we can't say enough. Heck, his own teammate, Kevin Durant, can't say enough about Devin Booker last night. Book just can't say enough about Book. Like, he, you know, I'm at a loss for words, you know, just how he approaches the game, how he's just a leader of this team, this organization, how he brings it every single day. And we just follow his, his imprint and, you know, we, we rally around him. So um, tonight was one of those nights. Monty Williams saying Book just competes. I just thought it was his will. Uh, determination, reading the defense, getting off the ball, um, and even defensively, like just competing. That That's something that I noticed when I first came here with him was he just competes every time he steps on the floor. And so we're just grateful for the win, grateful for all the contributions, and, and we're going to need it again on, on Sunday. It helps to have the best player on the floor. I mean, Jokic, I think, I is still say- widely regarded as the best player in this series. Uh, and we're going to talk plenty more about Jokic and how the Suns managed him last night. But it's hard to argue that Devin wasn't the best player on the floor last night. And while he was the best player on the floor last night, you could argue that the worst player on the floor last night was his teammate. How do they fix it for Game 4? That's next on Arizona Sports Saturday. Mitch and Steve on Arizona Sports Saturday. Arizona Sports, the local sports leader. Listen, the Phoenix Suns are back on track after winning in Game 3. Game 4 is tomorrow, by the way. Pretty quick turnaround. And while things feel like, okay, back on track, things are right with the world, not everything is right with the world. There's still a lot of frustration around what happened with DeAndre Ayton last night. Looking at the stat line, he played 33 minutes. 
Uh, sorry, I'm looking at the wrong game. I'm looking at game two. Game three, he played Here. 26 minutes. There you go. Scored only four points. He had just as many personal fouls. I think he got his fourth foul in the third quarter. My rule of thumb is you don't want to have more fouls than quarters. Yeah, that's... That's usually not good. Uh, kind of rough. I didn't love his defensive performance against Jokic. There were a couple... Man, there were a couple times late in the game, whether it was Aiton or I think Craig might have done this too, where they got a rebound and then immediately threw it to a member of the Nuggets. Yeah, there was not a lot of great passes last night. And I'm night. like, where is the outlet passes? Where Where is the take a couple of dribbles to clear the floor and, and find the guy that you want to find? I didn't love the performance out of Aiton, and obviously Monty Williams didn't either because he ended up benching him for Jock Landale. And he was asked about it after the game. Well, Jock was giving us great energy. Um, I thought his pressure on the rim just in transition opened up a ton of lanes for all of our guys to attack the paint tonight in transition. And then... He just scrapped. I mean, you couldn't point out anything that he did from a high-level skill perspective, but he just scrapped. And even when he was guarding uh, Murray or guarding the Smalls, he just competed. And, you know, guys have tough games, and D.A. didn't have his best tonight, but it's great to be able to have your brother out there that can pick it up for you. The most important storyline going into Game 4, it's not Devin Booker. It's not Kevin Durant. It is kind of Jokic in this way. But to me, the biggest storyline going into game four is how does DeAndre Ayton react to being benched for Jock Landale? To being outplayed by Jock Landale. Out-efforted by Jock Landale. And it's funny, I get into these text conversations with friends. I think you and I were talking about it last night. What happens if DeAndre Ayton just had the effort level of one of those other players like Landale or Bismack Biombo, who, by the way, did not play last night. An interesting change in the rotation yesterday. Landale got more time. In fact, Bismack he got, got no time. time. Yeah, he got 22 minutes last night. Whereas Landale in game did. two, he only played five minutes, Landale yeah. did. And Bismack got 10. So Monty clearly shaking things up with the rotation last night. And on some level, I do think that it worked for the bench. And in this particular case, it worked for Landale over Aiton. So what's the saying? Isn't it that role players perform better at home? And we had just talked about a bench performance that scored four points yeah. in game two. Well, uh, the bench did a lot better in game three. And a big part of that was jo- Jock Landale, not only offensively, what he was able to do in the post, but defensively, to your point, against Jokic and really cutting off some of the lanes that Jokic really takes advantage of most times. Jokic had six turnovers yesterday. Yeah. We are not going to get into the rest of his stat line, which was really darn good, but six turnovers. And a big part of that is the way that Jock Landell was able to shut off what Jokic normally is able to do in this Denver offense. And it's funny, I was listening to your pregame show yesterday. Great pregame show, by the way. You were taking calls, and you were asking each caller, you know, name a player not named Devin Booker or Kevin Durant that's going to be a key factor going to be the in reason this decision. that they win. Game right. three. Yeah. And I was thinking to myself while listening to the callers, you know, somebody brings up, you know, campaign filling in for Chris Paul. Okay, I feel yeah, that makes sense. the guy sense, that brought or... up Bismack Biombo yesterday. I'm, I'm, this is exactly where I'm going. <laughs> somebody brought up Bismack Biombo, and I thought to myself, I agree. And even though he didn't play last night, I have this thing in my head where – if Aiton is not going to ball out and is not going to turn into the Aiton that played against the Nuggets two years ago in the playoffs, fine. Then what we need to do is roll all three of them out there and just keep fresh bodies on Jokic and just keep him out of the paint. Just put a body on him everywhere he goes. I don't care if you 
I'm, I'm, I don't really care how much you score because clearly Devin Booker and Kevin Durant are going to do 90% of that themselves. Uh, I don't really care how much you're moving the ball because you're probably not going to get the ball a whole lot. Right. Just put fresh bodies on Jokic. That might be the only way to wear him down and possibly win this series. It's funny because very rarely, and just, you know, of the, all the years that I've watched Nikola Jokic play basketball in Denver, very rarely is his first option, oh, I got to get into the paint and score. His first option is finding what, you know, weakness or what available player is left on the floor. And then if he has to, he'll do the work that he does. That's sure. just Nikola Jokic's game. But I like your theory here. Especially in the sense that it was clear that Aiton was struggling against Jokic, someone he had succeeded against in four games just two years ago, right? I just found it interesting that Bismack Biombo was not an option because when you needed the defensive help in that third quarter where Denver just went on an absolute run and retook the lead, that would have been pretty nice to have Bismack in there because that's the defense that he provides. So I like your theory with the whole fresh bodies especially against a, a dynamo that is Nikola Jokic. Yeah, so instead of 26 minutes for Aiton last night and 22 for Landale, could I see a scenario, what is that, 48 minutes altogether, so that's a full game at one position. Instead of dividing it by two, could you divide it by three? And instead, you're rolling out all three of those guys for you know roughly 15-plus minutes uh, for the game and just keeping bodies fresh on Jokic. That would be good for closeouts, I would think, would be an advantage that you have because you don't want Jokic taking too many open threes because he's good at those two. He's pretty darn good. Um, I did think that Monty went to Landale and a couple other guys too. Like, uh, for instance, uh, Shamit got more time last night than he did previous. TJ Warren got a lot more time than previous. TJ uh, Torrey Craig only played three minutes. That was really weird. So it was almost a complete shift in who they were going to bring off the bench for significant minutes. And I liked that. Not that it did dividends uh, for the points column or anything. Sure. But I liked it because it was Monty showing confidence in guys that probably were starting to wonder if they still had a place in this rotation. Because like we mentioned, Lando only played five minutes in game two. Warren wasn't playing at all, I don't think. But like in some of the stat lines, you can see that waning confidence, I guess. Like Terrence Ross. What's the reason that we put or the Suns put Terrence Ross out there last night? They needed the scoring help. The scoring offense was option. stagnant in the first two games. And he didn't shoot well. Yeah. What did Terrence Ross provide? He provided five points. He was one of six from three, yeah. two of seven from the floor. He didn't really help you all that much. Will that change in game four? And by change, do I mean, are they going to defer away from him now? You wonder if this is now just going to become one of those, oh, it didn't work. All right, let's move on. Let's overcorrect. Torrey Craig got three minutes, and he was a starter in the prior series. It's hard to say, and... and And part of me blames Monty for not finding the rotation he wanted to roll with by now. We're in the second round of the playoffs. You should have had that figured out. And I realize there were injuries throughout the season. You traded for a megastar halfway through the year, and then he missed a bunch of time. So it's not like they had a lot of games to figure this out. But at the same time, to your point, Damian Lee didn't play last night. Bismack Biombo didn't play last night. Ish Wainwright didn't play last night. All of those guys played in game two. Yeah. So it was a complete shift in who you brought off the bench. And 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 again, like you were saying, do you make a complete shift back? Because I wouldn't argue that all those guys did poorly. While Terrence Ross, yeah, he was one for six from three. He wasn't great. But I, Shamit at times doesn't even look like a basketball player. It's one anymore. of those not everybody did poorly, but not everybody did great kind of things. Yeah, And I think a big part of that was because Aiton really struggled last night. I, I do want to get this out of the way, though. They're not going to. 
bench him. They're not going to bring him in off the bench. He's going to start in game four. He will. Let's just get that out of the way now. And I think you need to do that, right? And, For his confidence. And again, how did Monty phrase it? Some guys just have a bad night. Well, also, Aiton's had a, quite a few bad nights this postseason and towards the end of the regular season. I appreciate Monty for sticking up for his guy. And uh, Devin Booker did the same. Just listen to the way he talks about D.A. I mean, that's life. You know, we, we've been we've been around, you know, long enough to understand every night's not going to be your night. You know, it's just doing doing other things to make up for it. You know, if you make a shot, miss a layup, like, you, you don't know what's going to happen there. But energy and effort always has to be high, especially time, around this time. You can't get, you know, flustered. Um, you can't get in your own head. And, you know, I could see that a little bit with him today. So, you know, it's my job to, you know, just pump him up. Like, it's, a, it's the next possession. Like, you know, who cares how you play? All it comes down to is if you win or loss around this time of year. But here's the problem. How do you pump up DeAndre Ayton? Good question. How do you make him feel a bigger part of this team if that's what it is as to why he's upset? I remember there was a sequence. Kevin O'Connor, he had like a video clip of the sequence last night where Ayton missed the the layup attempt because Jamal Murray deflected the shot. And then back at the other end, Jokic missed the uh, layup attempt. He got the rebound, but then it was immediately stripped by Bruce Brown. And right. then that led to two points. And that right there kind of encapsulated the whole night for D.A. When it and rains, I, it pours. Exactly. And I think at that point, that was when Monty realized he just doesn't have it. i got to put my best guys out there and make sure we actually win. It's a question of mat- uh, motivation for me. What motivates DeAndre Ayton? By getting benched for a, a player who many people deem you're inferior. I believe that DeAndre Ayton is more talented than Jock Landale. Jock Landale plays with more effort and therefore was a better fit last night in that game. But the question is, how does he react to being benched for Landale? Well, I can tell you his immediate reaction was he didn't want to talk to anybody. Does he sulk on the bench? Does he get mad? Does he stop talking to players? I know a lot was made of him not dapping up Chris Paul when coming out. I I don't think that was a big deal. I think he mostly just missed it. But sure. Um does he sulk and complain, which we've seen in the past? Remember what happened in Game 7 last year against the Mavericks where he didn't think he was getting the ball enough and he made it about Monty. Yep. And so will he do that or will he use it as motivation to go out and ball in the next game? And I think that's probably the biggest storyline in Game 4 for me. Coming up next, the D-backs have actually been surprisingly good this season. They're currently sitting in second place in their own division. But is it sustainable? That's the question next on Arizona Sports Saturday. Mitch Ferelvis, Steve Zinsmeister, Arizona Sports Saturday. Arizona Sports, the local sports leader. Swing and a high drive left center. Call back onto the track at the wall. It's gone. A solo shot for Corbin Carroll, number five, and we're tied at one. Chris Garagiola on the call last night. Diamondbacks back home. In case you weren't paying attention last night, Diamondbacks won 3-1. Game one of their three-game set against the Nationals at Chase Field. That was Corbin Carroll's contribution as a designated hitter last night. Which I think we, he might be healthy. <laughs> I think he's fine. <laughs> I think he'll be all right. I think he's just fine. Uh, Tori Lavella was saying uh, yesterday with Burns and Gambo that they're just progressing him slowly. They don't want to rush anything, and I don't blame him. It's May. And you've got this guy for the next eight years. I would like to see him play for a majority of those eight years. That would be yeah, nice. that'd be good. Diamondbacks are really good right now, which 
you know, maybe we expected. Maybe we didn't expect this level of great baseball. But you know what? For better or for worse, I'm really liking what I'm seeing from the Diamondbacks right now. Yeah, it's good. And they're in second place. They're not far behind the Dodgers. They're Half not game. They're not far ahead of the Padres. So they're Half right, game. right in that mix of three teams <laughs> in the division that we expected to be in that conversation. Um, but there are still question marks. There's an extremely young starting rotation. Zach Gallen's been phenomenal the way that we hoped he would be. Looking like a Cy Young candidate. Merrill Kelly had a great start yesterday and has looked very, very solid as well. Ten strikeouts, always good. Uh, so you got a one-two. You've got the one-two figured out. It's the three-four-five. That's the hard part, and it's mostly a rotation of four very young guys: Tommy Henry, uh, Brandon Fought, their top pitching prospect, came up this week for his debut and got I'm rocked. I'm curious about the second start for Brandon. Yeah, oh yeah, and I'm sure that things will get better. I mean, he's yeah. not going to give up seven runs every time he goes out there. No. Um, Dre Jamison's back in minor leagues. He could be back at any time. And then Ryan Nelson fits into the picture as well. It's just a very young team, right? I mean, you've got an outfield that's basically average age is like 24 for but the we, starters. But we knew this, right? Oh, yeah. We knew coming into the season that the, the moves that the organization made this offseason, think about it. You traded away one of your young outfielders. And you brought in a very young but talented catching prospect. Yep. And a veteran outfielder slash DH. Veteran. You sign Evan Longoria to a one-year deal. Veteran. Veteran. The bullpen, bolstered by guys like Miguel Castro. Veteran. Andrew Chafin. Veteran. Scott McGuff, who has played baseball professionally. Maybe Veteran elsewhere. Major League, made, rookie this year, Major League. Veteran. Yeah. However, Kind of like Merrill player. Kelly when he came over. Exactly. Yeah. There is room for improvement, to your point. I Personally, I'm not sure where. Because think about the moves that the Diamondbacks have made so far this season. You cut Madison Bumgarner, which, you know, maybe for most people it felt way overdue, right? But that's another veteran that's gone. You send down Jake McCarthy, who really, really struggled in April. But he's young. He'll figure it out. But there are a lot of high expectations for Jake McCarthy the way he finished off the end of last season. Carson Kelly has been on the IL since the start of the year after that freak injury during spring training. That's a sorely missed veteran presence. Catching room has held their own, but you imagine that when Carson comes back, he'll see time. Paven Smith, another young guy, gets called up. And then the one that kind of gets buried in the whole thing, we probably weren't expecting him to get called up at any point, but Seth Beer now no longer a part of the 40-man roster. There's he got been a, DFA'd. There's been a lot of aggressive movement by this Diamondbacks organization this year, and probably for the better... But we still agree that there's some places that they can improve. I personally, I just don't know where. It's something that we've talked about a lot on the Ain't No Fang podcast. You can find it at ArizonaSports.com. Uh, Alex Weiner covers the team for ArizonaSports.com, and he and I have had a lot of conversations about internal and external improvement. Now, external improvement probably means trade deadline. What do you go out and acquire? It's a little early to talk about that, but because if you are where you are, second place in the division and right in the thick of things around mm-hmm. June and July, then yeah, we, sh- we should start talking about external improvements. But if you want to look internally, uh, I do think that there's obviously been a need for them to improve their hitting in the outfield. Jake McCarthy was struggling, hitting under 200. Uh, I think he's hitting 143. So they sent him to Reno. Alec Thomas is hitting 170. That cannot continue with regularity. So at some point, they might even flop, uh, flip-flop those two guys. Send Alec down, bring Mar- uh, McCarthy back at some point. That's something that they could do. 
internally. Kyle Lewis is a guy that they brought in in the offseason, traded for. Very strange uh, situation going on there, it feels like. Yeah, he's rehabbing now from an unknown illness uh, yeah. that's kept him on the aisle for the last month. It's it's a little odd, but he will be back at some point. I think point. it's just odd optically. Obviously, there's nothing being leaked or anything like that, but we just hope that Kyle Lewis gets back to his healthy self soon. One thing I think they could do internally to continue this level of success is Geraldo Perdomo should play more at shortstop. He's got 80 plate appearances. Nick Ahmed has 60. So that's already a pretty good indication that he's playing better than Ahmed. He's their team leader in wins above replacement this year. 397. Is this, this 468 is, on base. This is unexpected Perdomo production. Oh, yeah. To double down For a guy who hit race. under 200 last year? Below And he started most of the year because Ahmed was out. He had, I think, over 500 plate appearances last year. A full season at shortstop, and he was terrible. And this year, he's the complete opposite. I wonder, too, if there's less pressure on Perdomo to perform because he knows he has Ahmed. He knows that there aren't... The longest tenured Diamondback in history. There's not extra duties thrust upon him because he knows, oh, I've got the veteran presence of Nick Ahmed. He's going to spell me a couple of days if needed. And then Perdomo is well-rested. He's ready to go. He feels a lot calmer, more cool, collected, all that stuff. It's really paying dividends. Maybe that's where you start to think externally as opposed to internally. Because you have two guys that are performing well enough. Like, let's give Ahmed some credit, too. He's producing when he's been in the lineup. Maybe one of those guys becomes expendable to help bolster a different area of your roster. Well, I do think that those two guys are kind of holding down the fort until Jordan Lawler, their top hitting sure. prospect. Uh, he's a shortstop. He's in double A right now, I think. I think he's in double A, yeah. Uh, so Jordan Lawler, in theory, if he's on the Corbin Carroll track, he could be up in September. I mean, that's a possibility. So I think if you're Perdomo, you're probably not thinking too much about Lawler. But at the same time, there are pressures within the organization. You have Nick Ahmed, who's the longest tenured Diamondback in the history of the franchise, which Still doesn't make a lot of sense about. to me. He's also the second highest paid player on the team. The other one is Cattell Marte, the other player that Perdomo plays the same position as. Who's played really well, by the way. Yeah, he's actually heating up quite a bit lately. Um, So I do think you're right. I think that there are internal pressures for Perdomo that might be boosting his confidence even. Like, okay, I've got to... I really have to perform, especially when you look around at this team. And it's clear that in 2023, the Diamondbacks plan on contending. It's clear to me because they are not afraid to send guys down, cut guys who are World Series heroes from back in the day. They're like you. They're making changes. They're like you and I with our fantasy teams. We just we have to act fast, right? We can't just sit on X player because they're struggling, but because we believe in them. No, 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 no. Diamondbacks are taking the aggressive approach and it's working. And they're finding the production in different ways. Dominic Fletcher's had a pretty few good games since being called up a couple of days ago. This offense is humming. So here's you know, they're finding rhythm. Here's another thing that we've been talking about on the podcast is I don't think that this roster can continue to be constructed the way that it is. I don't think it's sustainable. You think it's too young? No, no, no. Well, yes and no. I, I do, do you think, think it's too imbalanced positionally. I do think when they get to the trade deadline, they are going to have to look at veterans and, and probably a little bit more power. But age aside, one of the things that strikes me with this roster is how similar some of the players are in the outfield. You still have Alec Thomas, Jake McCarthy, Corbin Carroll, Dominic Fletcher, Dominic Canzone. I'm going to throw in there as well. He's in AAA. That's five guys who are all. On the shorter side, quicker side, 
can play multiple positions, and they're left-handed. Five guys who are all comparable in skill set. Mm-hmm. Not that they're all playing equally, but that they're all comparable. I don't think that there's a place for Canzone and maybe not even Fletcher long term here. So there could be another move there. Starting pitcher. Let's go back to that for a second. You mentioned the three guys that are already up. Nelson's up. Uh, Tommy Henry's up. Brandon Fott's up. Drake Jameson's in AAA. Blake Walston is another big pitching prospect in AAA. He's mm-hmm. not far off. Bryce Jarvis was their first round pick a couple of years ago. He's in AAA now. He's not far off. That's six or seven guys right there that so are you, vying for spots. You have a surplus of two big things right now. I don't think that the roster can continue to look like this, exactly like this, throughout the remainder so of the season. So you're setting up the possibility of expending young guys in order to get a few more veterans? Yeah. Or but, do you want to stay young? No, no, no. You do want to package a few of them. But the, the trick is finding out first which ones of them you need to keep. Well, because you don't want to have another Max Scherzer situation where, okay, we're going to trade this guy, and then he becomes what you hoped he would become with your organization somewhere else. You know what I mean? Trying you to want think. to figure out which of these outfielders are going to be the best. Let's keep those guys and package some of the other guys with some other pitchers. Try and take like figure the, it out. the Dodgers approach with it, where for years they just refused to give up any of their prize prospects. But you yeah. know what? It seemed to work out for them pretty well. You look at the trade that they made to get Scherzer and Trey Turner out of Washington. Got them a World Series. Josiah Gray and Kiebert Ruiz, they're not doing all that great in Washington. And then you even think about the Juan Soto trade, sending him into San Diego. Like, what? what is Mackenzie Gore up to? He, he's going to pitch tonight. Well, Actually, he's been fantastic. Idea. Mackenzie Gore's been really good this and year. And then a bunch of other prospects who haven't made an impact for the team yet. You know, it's a huge boomer bust option. Sure. But I have to imagine that if you if if you're making moves like this in April, where you're sending down young guys because they just aren't performing, or you're cutting, you know, timeless veterans, I have to imagine they're going to be a, taking a similar approach when the trade deadline approaches, where they're not going to be afraid to give up some of those top talented prospects. I'll turn it the other way. When the Diamondbacks traded away Zach Greinke, we just mentioned Seth Beer. He was the prized piece of that trade, wasn't he? Uh, definitely the most notable hitter. In What's that he deal. up to? Got DFA'd. Could it, still stick around in the minors, but... You think about the Paul Goldschmidt trade. I think we can agree Carson Kelly was the prized piece of that trade. Yeah. What are the other two guys up to? Luke Weaver, he's gone. He's on his second, at least second team since Arizona. My and point being, Andrew Young, I don't even know if he's still playing. My point being is that this can work in your favor. Sometimes giving up a lot for one more so benefits the person that gets less in the deal, right? Cardinals made the playoffs every year with Paul Goldschmidt since. They're, they suck right now, but I'm sure that'll turn around. He won the MVP last year. Zach Greinke helped the Astros reach the World Series. Didn't win it with them, but he helped them get there. And now he's, you know, he's on his way out. But the Astros very much succeeded in that end of the trade. It can work in your favor. Here's... You just, you have to pounce. The last thing I was going to mention about the D-backs and the roster construction, I look at their bench, Evan Longoria, Emmanuel Rivera. Same player, basically. Evan Longoria right now is killing left-handed pitching, which is what he was signed to do. Mm-hmm. He cannot touch a righty, which is a problem, but he's only being asked to hit against lefties anyway, so I guess it all comes out in the wash. Sure. But he and Emmanuel Rivera play the same position, third base. They're both right-handed, and right now... Josh Rojas, he was hitting great to start the season. He's still pretty good offensively. Defensively, Josh Rojas is maybe the leading candidate for a gold glove in the National League right now. So I do think that they just have a few too many corner infielders, and they're too similar. So I do think some things are going to change eventually. They combined for 86 points 
but they only won the game by seven. So you have to wonder, is last night's winning way sustainable for the Suns? That's next on Arizona Sports Saturday. Mitch and Steve on Arizona Sports Saturday. Arizona Sports, the local sports leader. It was a truly remarkable scoring performance from Devin Booker. Every time that I see him score 40-plus in a playoff game, I think, he can't top that. I'm always wrong. I just look at the calendar and ask, what day is it? Oh, it's Friday? Cool. 47 points on 20 of 25 shooting in 42 minutes of play. He was 5 of 8 from beyond the arc. He only shot two free throws, which is pretty remarkable when you consider how many points he scored. In garbage time. Even the Yeah, there was like with seven seconds left in the game. Yeah. He had to, he he had to the, stop and laugh. He did the, hey, I did it. I look look what I did. <laughs> I got to the free throw line. I did it. Oh, my gosh. But as remarkable of a scoring performance as that is. And Kevin Durant, by the way, nothing to scoff at, 39 points last night, even though he was 12 of 31. Not a good shooting night. But he got to the free throw line. Yeah, he and had they 14 of 16. Throws. So the two guys combined for 86 points by my math. And I hate doing math on the air. But. They also had 17 assists. It's pretty good and I too. don't know what those points equate to. I think I saw somebody did the math. I don't remember off the top of my head. But they basically contributed to about 100 of the points last night. Out of 121. Exactly. Got it. As amazing as that is, as fantastic as it seems, as unbelievable as it is to watch, I cannot imagine that that is a sustainable way of winning in the NBA playoffs. Nonetheless, against a team that seems to be as consistent as the Denver Nuggets. Here's the other thing, too. Yeah, I mean, if you really want to get deep into it, there were some consistency issues with Denver last night. And look, credit where credit's due. Phoenix Suns did exactly what they were supposed to do. They won the game. They won the game, and they won at home. They defended home court. That's how this works, right? That's why when the, when the Nuggets went up two games to none, there's no freak out. There's no, like, oh, my gosh, this is over. It's been two games. I get it. They looked bad, but let them play at home first, then we'll figure it out. If they lose game four tomorrow, well, might be time to look for my uh, white flag collection. But for now, they did exactly what they were supposed to do. But I can't imagine that this is a recipe for success. When two of your players are combining for, trying to do quick math, 56 shot attempts... And the team as a total had 95. So Devin Booker and Kevin Durant shot half of the time for this team. Oh, yeah, easily. More than that. And you've got sparse point totals spread about, like Akogi had two, eight and four, Payne seven, Warren seven, Landale six, Shamit four, Ross five. That's not sustainable basketball. There's no way. And using the eye test, too, you tell me if you saw the same thing watching the game, but I watched the Suns, and most of the time, the way in which they score, it baffles me because it's Devin Booker hitting a three over a a well-contested defender, or uh, Kevin Durant gets to the free throw line. It's I saw that a lot, consistently. Mm -hmm. When I watch Denver score, they're finding multiple passing lanes, Jokic is finding guys cutting to the basket. It's really good basketball. And they got really good looks from three, and not a lot of them came down. It's two completely different brands of basketball right now, and typically I would endorse the version that the Nuggets played last night, not the version that the Suns played, which was commonly called hero ball 
<laughs> growing up at the YMCA. Look, there was even a point. That's hero ball. There was even a point last night where Booker was playing with four members of the bench, and I'm wondering to myself, what? How is this supposed to be the way that you maintain a lead? Leaving the one guy on the floor that's doing all your scoring and four dudes that came off the bench. That can't happen because then it's easy for Denver or anybody else that the Suns may or may not face to just key in on Booker. Make the other guys do the the hard work down low or on the outside. Makes it too easy for them. It's got to be hard, too. Like we talked earlier about how Monty Williams clearly just had a complete shift in mindset of who he was going to bring off the bench and for how long. Mm-hmm. Jock Landell went from five minutes in game two to 22 minutes and outplaying DeAndre Ayton last night. Bismack Biombo did not play, even though he played 10 minutes, twice as much as Landell in game two. So there was a change at that position. Uh, Ish Wainwright did not play. Damian Lee did not play last night. And in place, T.J. Warren got 26 minutes. Landry Shamick got 25. Terrence Ross played and got 14 minutes. Torrey Craig played very little, only three minutes. Akogi, only 10 minutes. There was a complete shift from uh, other than Durant, Ayton, and Booker. There was a complete shift of who Monty Williams chose to play last night to Mm -hmm. surround them. And at what time and in what roles. And I wonder if that kind of throws a wrench in consistency issues. These guys are having a hard time figuring out what role do I play when I'm on the floor because I'm not always on the floor. I mean, there's there's tape that I saw from the series against the Clippers, and look, they handled the Clippers just fine. But there's moments where the regular starters are on the floor and they have no idea what they're doing. Like, what play am I supposed to run? Oh, I thought you were going to be over here, but now I'm over there, and wait, what is happening now? It didn't show up last night, or at least not to my naked eye from watching the game. But that stuff's going to happen to your point if you start having these roller coaster sized minute totals from game to game. You know what I am curious about? We mentioned how Aiton's he's going to start tomorrow. There's there's no doubt about that. I believe so. I don't I, I don't see a reason to start somebody else like Landale. I, I don't see the reason for that. Well, how about starting T.J. Warren over Josh Akogi? Well, if the plan is only to play a Kogi for 10 minutes the way they did in Game 2, he I mean, started but played TJ, 10 minutes. T.J. Warren's defense was not awful. He had a plus-minus of plus 20. That's pretty good. It could come as misleading points. because they had a lot of spurts where Warren was on the floor and the Suns were running. Like that second quarter, that was where Warren got most of his minutes, and the Suns were just obliterating the Nuggets offensively. And there was even that closing five lineup to close out the first half where it was Warren and Ross with Aiton, Durant, and Booker. Kind of caught my attention. And the reason why is because it did a really good job spacing out the Suns on the floor. Something that had been severely lacking in the first couple of games where they just could not spread out their offense. And it really helped to have guys like Warren and Ross who early on, not so much late, but early on created an offensive threat on the floor that Denver had to account for. I guess it depends. Your question about Akogi or Warren. I guess my answer is who do you think is better to defend Michael Porter Jr.? Because Aaron Gordon and Durant are probably going to be on each other. Whoever's at center, whether it's Aiton, Landale, they're going to be on Jokic. So that three, the wing spot, kind of naturally goes to Porter Jr. I think he's a little bit bigger than most wings. He's a tough guard. He's, he's like more 6'10". of a four. Yeah. He and Gordon are actually pretty comparable physically, in my opinion. Um, so I guess the question is, who do you think is the better fit defensively? Akogi is the better defensive player. Yes. Warren is the better offensive player. 100%. But Warren's body type is probably closer to Porter's than Akogi's is. Akogi's a little bit closer to a guard, like a two-guard size. 
So I guess that plays into it quite a bit. T.J. Warren did contribute a little bit offensively last night. Ended the game with seven points. He hit a key three-pointer there towards the end of the game, which was clutch because he had just missed a shot in the previous drive. Right. And Booker found him in the corner again on the next drive, and he hit it. And I thought that was huge because it shows Devin Booker's confidence in these guys, even when they're not knocking down the shots that they're finding open. Um I mean, yeah, to was, your point, yeah, you probably roll with Warren a little bit more. There were several moments last night where I had that fear where the Suns were, they failed to score on a possession. And I'm thinking, oh no, they're just giving Denver another opportunity. But then Denver went back on the other end and also failed to score. So it's that moment of, okay, we dodged a bullet there. I don't think you're going to be dodging that many bullets in game four. I think if you fail to score on your offensive end, I think Denver's going to pick you apart, whether it's the fast break or just on their own possession. Well, and what I'm tired of is getting these 15, 10 to 15 point leads going, you know, you're in the third quarter or Drove fourth me quarter. Nuts last night. And Drove then me nuts. you blink and it's gone 10 minutes later. They even gave up the lead. They gave the up the lead. Yeah. The Nuggets took over at one point. So I, I realized they win the game by seven. That seems like it was pretty handed, handedly. But at the same time, you had a 15, at least 15 point lead at one point. Am I wrong about that? I didn't I think exactly keep track 17, of the statistics. But it was 15 at halftime. That, yeah, I agree. It's an unacceptable pr- and it response. Just fades away. Like, so that's something that's you go change. out there and have a thirty-eight to twenty-one second quarter, and then respond with a thirty-six to twenty-three in favor of Denver. That's unacceptable. All right, so I'll tell you what we've talked extensively about Game Three and how it went. Let's shift the focus to Game Four tomorrow and what needs to change and what needs to happen if the Suns want to come out of this thing two and two in the series. We're going to talk about that next, coming up on Arizona Sports Saturday.